Welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. You can follow along on Instagram at Speechy Side Up. This episode is a little different than my other episodes as it's part of an online event called Apraxia Connect that took place on June 24th, 2023. It has been made available for free by Tassel Learning. Attendees got access to amazing bonuses like a Q&A session with the speakers, apraxia resources, discount codes, and free digital downloads like an apraxia homework package from Anna D. SLP and a CV bingo for apraxia from SLP Mommy of Apraxia. You can still get access to all of these bonuses plus more, the recorded video playbacks, and earn 0.6 ASHA CEUs. I'll explain how at the end of this episode with a special gift for Speechy Side Up listeners. But if you can't wait, then just check out the show notes now. Hopefully you're sitting down for this one because you're definitely going to want to write down all the incredible CAS tips from this speaker. So grab your pens and get ready to build your confidence in diagnosing and treating childhood apraxia of speech. We have Dr. Jennifer Moore here, and we're going to be talking about visual analysis, which she's going to touch on and explain a little bit more. But this presentation is called Looking, Not Just Listening, Identifying Motor Speech Issues in Children. And I'm super excited to learn more. Really quickly, we'll go over our, our ASHA requirements. My name is Benita Lipback. I go by she, her. I'm an AAC consultant and early intervention therapist. I'm also a podcast host, and I have a private practice in South Florida. And when I'm not being an SLP, I'm hanging out with my toddler, husband, and our two doggies. How about you, Jen? Hi, my name is Jennifer Moore. I am a speech language pathologist, and I have a multidisciplinary private practice in New Jersey. We have three locations. I am a certified prompt instructor, and my area of clinical expertise is motor speech. I am super passionate about all things motor speech. So I'm super happy to be here and to share and to discuss um, this topic that I'm so passionate about. I, in addition to clinical practice specializing in motor speech disorders, I also have um, participated and conducted several research projects in the area of motor speech disorders and autism. And I have presented at various conferences such as Kasana, Praxia Kids, New Jersey Speech and Hearing Association, and several local speech and hearing chapters. I am an active member of the New Jersey Speech and Hearing Association and the chair of the Interprofessional Autism Conference. That's amazing. So you're a prompt certified instructor, you work on research, you've presented at conferences, you have your own private practice, you wear so many different hats. How yes, do you manage it all? <laughs> it is a crazy ride. And um, yeah, I don't even know. And um, so when I'm not doing like speech stuff, I have four kids and they keep me busy and I put on my mom hat and it's just a wild, crazy ride this life. So <laughs> That's amazing. So inspiring. So we'll go ahead and talk about our financial disclosures now. Really quickly, I have ownership interest in Speechy Side Up LLC and Tassel Learning LLC, and I'm an affiliate for Simple Practice and Meaningful Speech and receive commission for any sales made with my code. I'm also a member of ASHA. 
Okay, my financial disclosures. Uh, like I said, I am an owner of a private practice, so I received a salary from that as well. Um, I have a Teachers Pay Teachers store where I post motor speech materials, and I am an independent contractor of the Prompt Institute, so I receive compensation for teaching their courses. And I'm also a member, like I said, of Najisha and Asha. Wonderful. And we will be providing a speaking fee for your participation today. And we're just so grateful to have you here. All right. So here's our agenda for today. We went over our introductions and backgrounds. We are going to now talk about the importance of motor speech. Then we'll get into motor speech development, tools for assessing motor speech, core components of intervention, and then we'll wrap up with references and closing remarks. By the end of this presentation today, we hope that you'll be able to identify two motor speech disorders, describe the role of the jaw in motor speech development, identify at least two characteristics of motor speech involvement, and list two tools to include in a motor speech assessment. All right, so let's talk about why motor speech is important. Yes, and this is the why to everything in kind of my professional career and why a sh you know SLPs need to make a shift if they're treating kids with suspected motor speech issues or diagnosis of a motor speech issue. And I wanted to take a minute to talk about this because even on my own personal journey, um, I went to grad school in, you know, the mid 2000s and motor speech was, I remember one lecture pediatric motor speech was one lecture of the whole semester of like adult motor speech. I don't know if it was different for you. Did you have the same That's experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. There, it, there's a lot of focus on like acquired apraxia of, spe of speech and like how that looks like as a result of a brain injury or a stroke. And I remember sitting in the pediatric class and then I was like, okay. And then I just kind of went about my way. And then um, my CF uh, when I graduated was in a special education school. And guess what I had on my caseload? Someone with CAS. Yeah. Kids with motor speech disorders. And I was lost. And so I said to my uh, supervisor at the time, I said, like, what am I supposed to do? What can I take? And so she suggested some coursework and one of them was prompt. And that's how I got in that space. And, um, from that, you know, I really dived into the motor speech area expertise and really took coursework along the line. And then fast forward to, um, I received my doctorate and then I was adjunct at a um, college, a local college in New Jersey. And again, um, there was no <laughs> specific course on pediatric motor speech. And so I knew we had to make a shift. Like we, our field has to make a shift. And at that point, my contribution was I begged and I said, please let me create like a, just a course on this. And they let me do a 1.5 credit course on pediatric motor speech. And I still talk to a lot of my students over the years that have taken that course. I did it for a couple semesters and they are like, yeah, yeah, like this shift is needed. And what's important and from the takeaway that I want everybody listening is to you know, you don't have to unlearn what you learned in terms of articulation and phonology, but just zoom out and see from a wider perspective, visually look what's going on um, in that, with that child's mouth, look at those disordered movement patterns. 
And I've always been an SLP who's worked alongside OTs and PTs. And I do that in my daily practice as well. And they're always looking at motor across the whole body. And speech is a motor act. So once you get in that mindset of, you know, let me also look at the jaw or the lips or the tongue, you're going to be, you're going to feel more empowered. You're, you know, and we'll go through some things you can do to level up your um, practice with motor speech, but um, just getting in that mindset of like zooming out and looking, well, what's going on with the jaw? And that's going to give you information as to why they're presenting with maybe an articulation or phonological processing that might be um, being observed. I think that's so important. And honestly, I don't even know what I would be looking for. So I'm super excited to hear like exactly what it is that we're looking for when it's in regards to motor speech disorders. We had Jenya on, you know, Dr. Yuzini Siegel, and she was talking about how there's differential characteristics between CAS and dysarthria and that we like have it laid out like inconsistent or, or yeah, a con like I think what was, she, what was she saying? It was like inconsistent articulatory contact contacts, something like that. And she was like, what does that even look like? What does that even sound like? Like we know it's listed in the assessment, but when she actually had like grad students doing the assessments, they were making a lot of errors in the assessment because they actually didn't know what they were looking at or looking for. So I think that this visual analysis and actually like breaking that down is going to be super important. Absolutely. And research has a long way to go. And even... <laughs> prior research, you know, um, from years, like it's just shifting. Like we, we are knowing more about everything and also technology is allowing us to actually track objectively, like track and measure changes in lip, tongue, and jaw movements. So as that progresses, we're leveling up as a field as well. So there's exciting things going on. Yeah. Well, and she brought up another point that like the the likelihood of an SLP in the school system coming across a child with motor speech disorders is much higher than we think. Like it's said to be so rare, but I think she said one in 1000 children. And so that means that at least every SLP in the school will have a child once in their career with a motor speech disorder, whether it's CAS or dysarthria. So it's like so critical that SLPs are able to assess for this, right? Absolutely. And just with the diagnostic criteria, we're learning more. And there's studies that are coming out that are showing that, yes, you can have, you know, the apraxia, dysarthria, dual diagnosis. And then also there's kids that are presenting with motor speech involvement that don't necessarily meet the criteria for apraxia or dysarthria, but there's, there's, Dis visible disordered movement patterns such as jaw sliding or where your jaw moves laterally or front back. There could be like vocal or resonance differences for moving the tongue, um, poor tongue jaw dissociation and, and difficulty moving the different parts of the tongue. Um, and even just moving lips intimately from jaw. These are all things we're going to get into, but there's kids that are presenting with these disordered movement patterns, but yet they don't meet that diagnostic criteria, but you know, you're suspecting motor. So it's important to, you know, 
assess, acknowledge, yes, there is motor speech involvement. And then what are you doing in your sessions to help support that? So super awesome. amazing, like interesting area. And I get excited about it because I love where our field is going. And you have an amazing lineup in this, you know, Apraxia Connect Summit. And I feel like these are like, I have so much respect for my co-presenters. It's just amazing. I'm excited where this field is going. Yeah. Well, and this was like the number one requested topic. So obviously like it's needed, very needed. And like you said, the research is emerging, but it's not there yet. So we're very lucky to have everybody who's presenting today. So let's talk about the importance of visual analysis. Now you kind of touched on it, but expand on it a little bit more. Absolutely. So a lot of times kids will walk into your clinic or get on your caseload at a, at a school, in a school, and they have like an R issue. We'll use R as an example, because that is something that everybody like is like, ah, R, oh my gosh, what do I do? And like so many kids can struggle with it and it's not an easier, so upfront sound to work with. So we'll use that as our example. So the importance of a visual analysis is to identify where the motor breakdown is, right? So instead of working on just placement, which we do when we're, you know, just looking at the sound, well, do they have the right placement? Do they have the right uh, manner, voicing, right? We're, we're going to go a level deeper and you need to look at like, why are they struggling with this persistent sound error? And so with R, a lot of times you think it might be, you know, they're just not putting their tongue where it's supposed to go or they're rounding by doing a visual analysis and looking at like, what are they doing with their jaw? Do they really have good jaw control or are they having poor jaw grading and now they can't transition into that er sound? So if you think of R in isolation, we just say er, our jaw is up. So a lot of kids, when you look at their error, if you're looking, they tend to, let's say, drop their jaw and they're like, oh, and they'll go to like more of a mid range. And so that's important because it's not, well, their tongue could be in the right spot, but like underlying motor speech movements could be disordered, which is now imbalancing the system and preventing them from achieving the lingual tension that's needed and the lingual, you know, the sides of the tongue, the lateral um, contact, everything to happen because there is that underlying jaw issue. And when you're watching them in connected speech, their jaw is like all over the place. And so instead of going right to the tongue, we have to zoom out and say, well, maybe we need to work more on like the different jaw heights. Do they really have good stability at a higher jaw height to support the complex lingual movement needed for that R or so that's like an example that I see a lot of the kids are like caw caw or like wood where they're dropping that jaw so just mm -hmm. like looking at the the system as a whole and saying well why is there a breakdown and making sure they have those foundational control to support all these different sounds and connected speech that's super interesting because I think a lot of the times when we talk about like the R sound specifically. And I don't want to like hone on in on that too much because I know this is like bigger than that. But we don't really talk about the jaw that much. We are talking a lot about the tongue. But I imagine mm -hmm. the co-articulatory 
contacts definitely affect that vowels right a lot of them are produced with the lower jaw so it's like that coordination with getting it back up again right for that sound that's super interesting because if you're doing ear your jaw is up right but if you're doing r your jaw has to go down and then back up again super absolutely so just nice. building on that, if you are, you know, if we're going to continue with, if you are focusing on R, <laughs> you have to look really again at that jaw, because if there, it's going to be paired with a vowel, like car, the system has to, the jaw has to lower and then come up and then produce the R versus like you said, ear or air or, or where you're really working on that co-articulated movement and that system needs that jaw is going to, for you know, drive that. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's talk about motor speech development now and have like a overview of it and the role of it and the importance. Okay. This is another area that is overlooked in our graduate programs as well as like continuing ed. And it's such like an important piece of what we do as SLPs. And so I think it's really important for us to get in that motor speech development mind space, you know, that space and, you know, understand what happens, you know, with the jaw, lips and tongue over time. And so just like language development, we're not born with the ability to speak. So we have to gradually learn it through our experiences, through um, the integration of reflexes and more volitional movements. Um, and really a lot of those theories that are present in the motor speech literature talk about internal and external interactions. What is the brain doing and developing in response to what's happening in the environment and sensory feedback and, you know, um, the over the interaction of motor and language, which we're going to talk about next. But this is such a huge area because it's something that we need to know about because we need to be able to identify what is a normal trajectory of motor speech or if there is going to, if there is an atypical um, development or disordered pattern that's happening because it's kind of, it's an overlay, right? You need jaw control to get lip control. So if you're not developing jaw control, your lip is not going to develop your control. So it's kind of an overlay. So there's a lot of research out there which talks about the this whole range of development. Um, I wanna mention uh, an article, which is a really good resource. Um, I wanna provide everyone listening with like free resources because this information is out there. You just gotta, you have to know where to look. And so I'm going to give you like the list of where to find all this. Cause it's important if you wanna get in this space, you gotta, it's kind of like you gotta pull from different sources and kind of make your battery, uh, like your collection of um, different resources to help you with these patients. So the one article that came out was is um, speech sound disorders in children: an articulatory phonological perspective, um, and it's by Dr. Namasavayam, Coleman, O'Dwyer, and Van Shout. And so what they did um, was create, and this is a super helpful chart, and I'll put it in the link. But basically, what this does is it outlines the. Um, range of like jaw development, range of lip development, tongue, like what is happening in the system. And they connect it to what speech sounds are developing. And so this is super important because if we look at 
when a baby is born, their musculature and anatomy is very complex, compact. And so over time, once their head grows, palate expands, everything starts happening, the jaw is the first articulator to develop. So the jaw starts to develop. And as the jaw starts moving, it starts to make muscle and motor connections. And that first one to develop is the relationship between that lower lip and that jaw for like opening, closing. Think of if you're not getting this visual on there, think of like, I always use the example of Elmo, right? Like a puppet, he could open, close. There's no lips or tongue. It's just jaw opening and closing. So that is the first articulatory movement to develop is that jaw. So if we think about simultaneous speech sound acquisition, what are the first sounds to develop? The ones that like, require the jaw. Yeah. yeah like pa, ba, mm. So mm. pa, ba, mm are coming in because it's directly related to what's going on in the motor system. That jaw mm. opening and closing and you're getting that broad contact. Ba, ba, ma, ma. So the baby is allowed to babble. And that's why when, if you're, you know, in that articulation mindset, you're going right to PB and M because that's the easiest sound. Well, why is that? Because the jaw is the first one to develop. Our speech is jaw driven beginning and beginning in life and jaw control. It's going to develop over years <laughs> because there's research shows there's variability and there's the difference. There's variability across people and across ages, but if you look at a two-year-old versus a seven-year-old and how they're moving their jaw, obviously the seven-year-old is going to have better grading control because the system has matured. And so if we think of that, the importance of this is that if the child is not developing those emerging jaw movements, we they, they're not going to be able to advance to, wow, now I can move my jaw. And at the next developmental movement would be like the lip separating for the jaw so that they can now say like go and that O instead of just like ga or like mommy instead of just like mama, right? It becomes more controlled. But if you don't have good jaw movement in the beginning of development, guess what? Those O's, those O's are not going to come in and the tongue is not going to develop. You're not going to hear those sounds. And so the same thing happens with the tongue in early development. And if you reference that, like if you guys want to do some homework, you, you know, this is a really important chart. You can kind of go into detail with that um, and see the trajectory of the development. But also the tongue, it starts out uncoupled from the jaw. It's going to move together. So you get da, da, da. If you don't develop that tongue-jaw dissociation, so moving that tongue independently from the jaw, then you are not going to progress to moving the tongue tip versus the tongue posterior tongue versus versus the mid tongue. All that's not going to happen because you're not going to have that jaw control to stabilize and then say like, daddy, it's going to be dada. And so if you research has shown, if you don't have these like foundational motor speech control, it's going to impact speech intelligibility. It's going to impact these more complex sounds from coming in. Wow. That's amazing. Like I wrote so many notes. I love what you said that speech is jaw driven. I think that'll be our quote for this 
presentation because I think that that's yeah. really important. And do you, do you, is there research that shows that, like, I know that for children with apraxia of speech, the research has shown that a lot of them don't babble. Like that's one of the, there's a correlation between like not babbling early on and childhood apraxia of speech. Is that because of that jaw movement being like having difficulty with that jaw movement? That's yeah. super interesting. Yeah. So like, I like what you did there. You're like connecting babbling to motor. And that's really, we have to be in that mindset. And, you know, that statement of like speech is jar driven. Like, that's in the research. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's proven there because they are, you know, there's certain studies and I'll mention more, but um, they, I put one on my Instagram. It was from like 2015, 2016, and it was Jenya's study. Um, okay. And they tracked jaw movements and toddlers. And they're able to put those markers on like the lips and jaw and track the movements. And so that brings us to our, it's a nice segue into our next point of like language development with motor speech. And so Jenya's um, study that she did where they tracked like lip and movements in, um, it was toddlers, 18, you know, 21 months, like that early stages, they found that there was a breakdown at in motor speech control at like 18 to 21 months. There was like the system was reorganizing. So yeah. it's kind of like what happens at 18 to 21 months. I was thinking about this more the other day. I was like, when do SLPs get that referral of like, my child's not talking. It's at that like 18 month to two-year-old checkup. And so the motor system is going to develop, 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 and then it's going to support certain sounds. So if you look at her, you know, the charts, the data from that study, it was like motor speech control and expressive communication kind of go together. As my jaw develops and my lips, you're going to get words like mama, papa, dada, and then they found during that period, the motor system was reorganizing and like the expressive communication piece kind of like also was kind of stagnant because it couldn't support. And then they like go back together after. So um, it's, it's kind of like thinking, well, once it reorganizes, that's why at two, around two years, you can start to get more phrases, right? Because the motor system is, is developing faster and you're able to support more, um, more language production. And also, um, if you think about the lexicon, why is our, fir our first words never like elephant <laughs> or like eat, right? Because that takes more motor control. So there's like, and there's other studies too that really look in, and I think it's so interesting, like looking at that overlay of motor speech development with what words are we expected at that age or at that point in time and tying that into treatment when you do a visual analysis and you're looking at the breakdown and we're going to talk about the motor speech hierarchy, you are looking at, well, if my client doesn't have good jaw control, I'm not going to pick a word like elephant. I'm going to pick a word like top and just teach them to like open, close their mouth, um, which is moving out of that space of like, well, this word starts with a B, I'll just pick it. And we're thinking more in terms of movement. And that's what prompt does. And that's what a lot of like DTTC, we're looking at what does the child have? What can they produce? What could we cue? 
So it's really interesting when you pan out and kind of look at that interaction. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And I just want to clarify the study for the children that were between 18 to 21 months. Was that with children that had CAS or suspected CAS or was that with any child? That was typical development, like okay. a child without motor issues. So like naturally okay. that's what's happening. That's why you see that burst in language and that reorganization of the motor speech mm. development. Motor speech development. Gotcha. I'm just thinking at my own, like about my own daughter who is 29 months now. Yeah. Like 30 months. Uh, and I'm thinking back, like, what did that period look like? And some of what you said, like definitely resonated. So that's super interesting. Mm -hmm. and, and at that time too like if the go ahead can't, oh. um, and at that time too because the motor system like the demand in language is causing like the motor has to keep up with that and so if that if it's not connecting I mean kids can sound more unintelligible at that age too they have a lot to say but the motor system can't support all that stuff that they want to say <laughs> so you get that breakdown so interesting. I'm also thinking about one of my like daughter's little friends and like, just to give an example for everybody, she was using like phrases and sentences, but it was so unintelligible. We're all just like, what is she saying? But within the last month, I was like, wow, everything she's saying is so clear now. Like, how did that happen overnight? Do you think that this is like that process working its way with her? Absolutely. And if you're going to go back and reference like this, this chart of, you know, motor speech development, like you start, you could look at it and like upper lip and lower lip differentiation emerges at like two and a half. That's when you start to see like some independent movements, which is why kids, you know, can start to say like, uh, like you'll, some kids will get F and V and other kids, it takes them a little bit longer. And that's why there's variability, but, you know, just thinking of that you know, between one to two months, that jaw is going to um, further develop and you can get like some lip rounding and lip retraction in that high jaw position, like oohs and o's are gonna start coming. So it's all relative. And like we know with language development, like you can kind of group kids based on age, but there is still like a lot of variability. And that has to do with like the environment. Are they in a language rich, rich environment? right? Where they have to practice speaking, you know, it, it all ties into like what we know about like the language literature. And what I'm saying is like nothing new. It's all in the research. It's just putting it all together and like thinking about, well, why am I seeing this? Well, what does their language look like? What does their speech look like? It motor speech, it like goes together. And I think a big misconception in motor speech Therapy is that we want to separate it. We want to say we're practicing speech and, you know, it really, really goes together and we'll get more. We'll talk more about that when we talk about interventions. Okay, perfect. So let's talk about the tools for visual analysis that give you more of that objective measure. Okay. So the tools that I'm going to show you are all from different research studies that are looking at motor speech control and its relation to language and its relationship to speech intelligibility. And so the first um, resource that I want to mention is the motor speech hierarchy, and it is from the Prompt Institute, Deborah Hayden. And um, 
there is, I'm going to put the link to the article um, in the list that I sent you, but motor speech hierarchy, it has a lot of evidence in the last 10 to 20 years to support um, the development and the co like the interaction between jaw with lips, lips with tongue, voicing, sequencing, prosody. Um, and so just to give you guys a visual, this is a diagram um, depicting depicting um, motor speech control and the relationship between the articulators. And it's a hierarchy because it's hierarchical, meaning like it's going to be developmental in nature. So just to give you guys an overview, and you can find more information if you take a prompt course, um, and I'm going to put a link to the article where you can read about this. It's open access. So if we're looking at motor speech, this is a super helpful diagram, and it's used in a lot of the motor speech research. Um, we can view motor speech production with having tone at the base of it. Tone and your voice are going to be the driving force for your speech production. And then we look at jaw control. So looking at this as a base of support for speech, your jaw. Then we look at lip control, tongue control, and sequencing. Then we put it all together for sequencing movements. So prompt and their research looks a lot at what we call, you know, planes of movement. And so we know the jaw moves vertically in space. So if you said the word like top and on, that's one way to move your articulator. Vertical movements are what the jaw does. After, you know, we get that starting jaw movement, we talked about the lips separating from the jaw, and then you can get rounding and retraction. So looking at how our articulators are moving horizontally in space. We can say words like boo or me. We're moving horizontally in space. And developmentally, then what starts to happen is like I mentioned, the jaw and the tongue start to separate. And this is across a, you know, a lot of body of research which looks at that development. So in lingual control, what we start to see is that tongue separate and then you get like alveolar sounds, you get velar sounds and everything in the middle. So when we're thinking of tongue movements, we're viewing that as like an anterior posterior movement. The tongue is going to move this way in space. Um, and if you're listening and not watching, <laughs> for those of you on just the podcast version, um, I'm moving my hand forward, the forward of the mouth and back towards the back of the mouth. And so when you start to look at planes of movement, it kind of, when we're doing a visual analysis, you also want to look at beyond just the syllable shape. You want to look at what is the motor demand of that word. And here is an example. If everybody says the word um, pop, pop. You felt lips go together. And then I felt my mouth opening. And then I had to close my jaw back up. That was what we call like more of a vertical trajectory, right? We're going, moving up and down in space, pop. Now everybody say peep. So when you said peep, there wasn't a lot of jaw movement. You had to stabilize your jaw at a higher position. And there was a better, a, a greater reliance on your lips to, to do the work peep. You had to put your lips together, then spread your lips then put your lips back together. And so this is why when we're looking at syllable shapes, 
when you're in that motor speech mindset, you're going to go one step further. You're going to say, wow, those were both bilabial CVCs, but the motor demand was different because there was the, that there was a vowel, different vowels and that caused a different movement of your jaw, lips, and tongue, right? So pop, peep. So if we're doing, if we're in that mindset of motor speech and you're just picking CVCs, they're going to have a lot of variability on what motor movement you're working on and what that motor demand is. So if I was a child that had difficulty grading my jaw, I might say pa or pop, but I might be able to see the say the final consonant when you tell me to say peep because I didn't have to move my jaw. So we're just looking at it. Yeah. And that's the example like I use all the time when I'm talking to parents or other therapists or like teaching. I'm like, you know, we want to, yes, syllable shapes are important, but when you're going one step further and looking at um, the movement trajectory, and this is what, if you take, you know, the prompt course, they go way into this, but just being mindful of like, what are you having your, how are you having your child move their mouth? Super fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. So like, I, and I don't want to get too much into like articulation versus, you know, uh, CAS here, but like those later developing sounds like the ul sound, you said that one of the last things to happen is the tongue separating from the jaw. Is that why those sounds tend to come later sometimes? Yeah. I mean, if we look at like common errors with the L, a lot of kids will compensate and you see that tongue folding or yeah. they have to open their mouth super big to get their <laughs> tongue up. So yeah. it's kind of like, wow, do they have good jaw, you know, control or is there a good tongue jaw dissociation to support that? And also within tongue, like lingual differentiation, because it's not just this, it's kind of like the whole tongue body kind of moving like, oh, and you want to have that good stability so that we're not seeing the compensatory um, movements such as what I did before, like, you know, those exaggerated big movements, mm. but it all, it all connects. And when we also look at the motor speech hierarchy, um, prompt does a great job of like at the very top, you have those sequencing movements where you're combining planes of movement. So like a word like Halloween, <laughs> you had to uh, open your jaw round your lips, retract your lips, and there's some tongue action moving in there, right? So when you say connected speech and words like that, you're you're pulling from your tongue, your, your lips, your jaw, all everything has to come together to produce that. And that's like a big, you know, piece of why there's that breakdown and why we can't just pick words that start with a certain letter in motor speech intervention. You want to look at like what movement motor speech is all about movements and co-articulation co and transition. So we have to get in that mindset and not just pick words that start with the letter P because then you're going to get pop and peep in the same set. So interesting. Yeah. Cause I've heard like, look at sounds that are in their inventory, but you're saying like, we should also be looking at like the movements that are in their inventory, I guess, right? Absolutely. And when I'm talking about motor speech, I'm talking about like generally, like I'm not, I, you know, we're not going to get into like cast versus disarm. Like we're just looking generally that there's 
a motor speech imbalance because, okay. um, so when, when thinking about that, yes, you know, with a, you want to see like, well, what does the child have? But then if you're taking, like, if you're just treating broadly, it's, there's going to be that focus on the movement patterns too. That's going to allow, like, if a child has a sound, you know, maybe they can say, you know, C, but I'm saying, wow, you need more jaw wear. I'm not going to ignore the fact that they have that motor plan for that. I can build into it. So it's kind of like adding this visual analysis tool that so much research talks about, just like adding this piece to what you're already doing. Gotcha. Okay. This is super interesting. And forgive my ignorance in regards to CAS, but are we seeing inconsistent movements with CAS where it could be difficult to say, okay, like that movement, or do they start to develop like solid movement patterns? uh, as their like speech develops. Does that make sense? Like, I'm wondering if it would be hard to say like, oh, they're able to open it consistently because we're seeing it. It's so inconsistent. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Like inconsistencies, you know, and that, that's like a whole other, <laughs> like you could go, you could dive into that super deep. Um, what I tend to see is like, okay, well, I hear a lot of times parents will say, you know, um, okay, well, they can say this sound sometimes, or sometimes they leave off the last sound of a word, you know? And so for me, like when I'm viewing that, I'm, I'm thinking, well, what is the context of that word? And what is the deal on the motor system, right? If we're looking at that example from before pop and peep. Well, sometimes they leave off the P like in the word pop. And then we look and they really are, you know, um, exhibiting poor jaw grading. So they're kind of keeping their jaw up. And so I can say peep and I can talk to you like this because I'm not moving my jaw. And I can say, you know, pa, or maybe the, um, so I can say peep. But then when you really work on having me open my mouth, because that's such a hard motor movement for me, and I don't have that stability in that motor plan that's when I'm breaking down. I can't go pop. Got it. Okay. Thank you for answering that. Cause that really it, clarified like my thought process and, um, that makes a lot of sense. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And this has been, you know, it's, we have a way to go, you know, everything that I'm saying is nothing new. It's all in the research and, you know, research is keep, keeps coming. So we'll know more. And it's just a lot of like, a lot of stuff that a lot of like examples and points that I'm saying are things that clinicians see all the time. Is there research to back it up? Maybe, or maybe the research is saying this, but we're seeing this. So my main takeaway is like, I just look at motor, like involved, like what is the mouth doing and like panning out? Mm -hmm. Because if we try to get stuck on diagnostic criteria, sometimes we're waiting, you know, or like sometimes there were second guessing, but like there's suspected motor, like treat the motor, treat what you see. Right. As clinicians, we can treat what we see. We don't treat what we don't see. No, that makes sense. So I don't know if we touched on this, but are we going to talk about like what would be some characteristics of the impaired motor system? Like specifically, like if someone or is there like a something that you can reference to? Yes, absolutely. So Dr. Namasavayam, he's an art, the first author on that um, article that I mentioned, and he's a speech science researcher out of University of Toronto, and he has Speech Research Center he's affiliated with. 
Um, he does a lot of research in this area. And so he and I paired up and we created a um, free resource that you can sign up for. And it's 20 signs of pediatric motor speech disorders. And so what he and I did was, again, we're not looking at apraxia versus dysarthria versus speech motor delay versus, we're just looking, panning out and saying, okay, well, what is generally indicative of some motor speech involvement? And so based on the research, there's these 20 signs. And so some of them are what we talked about, limited lip jaw dissociation. So instead of saying, go they're saying like go and the lips are not moving without the jaw or distorted vowels you're going to have distorted vowels if you don't have good jaw control or tongue jaw dissociation those vowels are going to be distorted right so these are things that you know jaw sliding that indicates that there's like that imbalance in the system and the movements are not coordinated or controlled um excessive jaw range. We have, you know, you might see clients who don't have that good control. So everything's ballistic. Like I want to go outside. It's big. It's poorly controlled. So for me, if I see motor, I'm treating motor and I'm working on that hierarchy as my guide mm -hmm. um, and working through like jaw to get to, you know, jaw is going to provide what we say in prompt therapy, like jaw is going to provide stability or mobility of the lip lips and tongue. So if you follow like a developmental model of motor speech development, it's going to help drive your treatment. You're going to be a detective and you're going to go back and say, well, like, wow, does the jaw move? Does the tongue move? Is it coordinated? Is it refined? Or is it big ballistic movements? Because we know for intelligible speech, we need that control and we need that dissociation and everything has to move fast. And I always say like, as you increase speed to talk in connected speech and express all of your ideas, your control has to go up because your motor speech system has to support the speed and that connection between what you want to say and the production. That makes sense. That resource looks amazing. So thank you for sharing that. We'll definitely try to include it or include the link in some way so that people have easy access to it. Um, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole, but like how often are you seeing myo as a factor and are you referring out? Like, do you want to even talk about that or touch on that at all? Okay. Yeah. So for sure. So I, like I said, I've always looked at motor and like worked along OTs and being in private practice for the last 10 years, like you're using like that medical model where we are referring to like ENTs and orthodontists and working with them. So a lot of times, and I say this when I teach prompt, I'm like, you know, motor speech is just one little like nugget out of the whole big <laughs> pot that you have to look at, right? So motor is movement, it's dissociation. The muscular system has to have a good skeletal system, right? So if there is an overbite, an underbite, you know, it's going to impact your motor movements. It's going to throw off your timing. Cause every time you have, if you have an overbite and every time you have to get a bilabial, you have to go move extra over or um, activate that muscle to come down. Then it's going to throw off your timing and your intelligibility and, you know, a bunch of other things. So, so I always say to clinicians, like you got to pan out and you got to look at the big picture. 
So why do we have an overbite? It has to go to like tongue resting posture and airway is so important. And if we tie airway to motor speech, you have to be able to have adequate breath support to support speech intelligibility and connected speech. We know that. And so if I'm looking from a motor perspective, if kids don't have that breath support with like diaphragmatic breathing and that core stability, it's going to impact their transitions and their ability to co-articulate. So looking at how the muscles are moving and that there's an adequate skeletal system. So always panning out. And that means that sometimes, you know, we, we have to pan out and always look at where's the positioning of the tongue and everything else that's happening. Airway is like your number one priority. If you're mouth breathing, that's going to impact how you're talking as well. And just your overall state and your spatial growth and development. So yeah, that is like a whole other, <laughs> like you can sit here and talk about it for like a whole week, you know, um, have a whole week podcast on it. But um, big thing is like, I say motors, just one little piece to like the big picture. Got it. No. And I appreciate you touching on that, that, cause I think we're going to have parents who will be listening to this. So just they need to keep in mind and SLPs too, like there might be the need for referral because there's other things that could be going on as well. So I appreciate you sharing that. Absolutely. And that's just what I do as a private practice practitioner. Of course, if you're in a school, your relationship's going to be a little bit different. Yeah. Um, and so I like to make that disclaimer too. You got to do to the best of your ability in that setting that you work in. Definitely. That makes sense. Okay, so building on the motor speech hierarchy, um, the Prompt Institute, and I'm going to reference this article also by Dr. Aravan Namasavayam as the first author, um, looks at word lists. So they have developed probe words, which correspond to the different subsystems on the motor speech hierarchy. So like jaw control, lip control, tongue control, sequencing movements. So these are word lists that um, clinicians can use to assess jaw control. And so this is a free open access article and I'll put the link um, in your resources, um, but it talks about having this tool as a way to identify a motor speech breakdown. So if you're thinking, oh, it's with the lips, right? But you're also never forgetting about the jaw and you're gonna assess the jaw. And what this resource is, is it gives you a word list for each of those subsystems, like I said, and it also has scoring criteria for each of the words. So for, I'm gonna pull up labial facial control and there's a set of words, um, there's like 10, around 10, 12 words per subsystem. So what you would do is you're going to, let's say I wanna, I'm gonna go through the whole subsystems, but we're just gonna highlight labial facial control for a second. So that's your lips and your cheeks, right? For those movements on this plane of movement, right? Working on the horizontal plane. So let's think about the word B, B. Okay, so I would have my client say the word B, I would videotape it, and then I would use my probe words protocol. And if we think about the word B, what motor skills are needed to say the word B? And so you're going to score your client a one or a zero. One is yes, it's refined, controlled, it's there. And zero is that's ah, disordered or they're unable to do it. 
So for B, we need an appropriate jaw range. I don't want you to go bay, right? Then you would get a zero. Or things like appropriate lip symmetry, B. Maybe I went B and it was one side. That's going to impact, right? Because we remember, we know like motor speech control impacts speech intelligibility. It's in the research. We know if you don't have good movement and good control, it's going to throw off your time. What is speech intelligibility? It's the timing. It's the transitions. It's how clear you're speaking. So if your system is not balanced, you're not going to have that control to produce speech so that somebody else can understand what you're saying and having that effortless movements. So again, we're looking at each of these components that's needed to say B. Um, they also have independent um, bilabial control at the medial one third, which is fancy for saying that the pressure is gonna come from here when I say B versus whole lip, B, B, right? So just diving into this. And um, the research article goes into like how they developed it, how they validated it. Um, and what's nice about this is that you add up your score, one, zero, and you add up your ones, and then you get a percentage for each subsystem. So you'll get a percentage score for jaw, percentage score for lips, for tongue and sequencing movements. And then what I like is that I do this as part of my assessment because it tells me where the breakdown is. If they only scored, you know, if they scored a 50% in jaw control, but then they didn't, they scored a 10% in lip control. Well, that's going to tell you like, there's not good jaw control to support like lip control being functional, right? So it paints that picture. And also it lets you kind of have a measure to like what, what you're doing. Is it successful? Is your therapy working? And it's highly sensitive, meaning like if you gave them a one or let's say you gave them a zero and then you redid this a month later and you gave them a one, it's going to be reflected in the percentage. So it's highly sensitive. So even like just a few additional points is going to change it. And if you work in private practice, like I do, we have to show change if you're accepting insurance, right? Insurance wants to see that you your treatment is effective. So I personally use this tool as my assessment and then also for like monitoring treatment outcomes and progress. That sounds amazing. And I love that it's open access and free. So thank you so much for sharing that resource. And I love how objective it is. Like <laughs> it really gives you a clear measure and the percentage and to be able to track progress, like you were describing is essential. So thank you so much for sharing that. Yes. Ready to dive into ICS? Yes. So as I keep saying, motor speech control is related to speech intelligibility. So another free tool that I use in my assessment and treatment is the ICS, which is the Intelligibility and Context Scale. This is also a free resource, so I'll put the link. It was developed by McLeod, McCormick in 2012 and Harrison in 2012. And so what this is, is a rating scale um, and you fill it out with the parent or caregiver or spouse. Um, and um, it's going to have you rate your perception, like how intelligible is your child 
um, with different listeners, like proximity to the child. So you have like, do you yourself understand your child? Always, usually, sometimes, rarely, never. How about immediate family members, extended family members, child's friends, acquaintances, teachers, strangers, like random people? Do they, you know, because we know intelligibility can can is going to vary, you know, as a parent, you're used to your child's speech patterns, you can figure it out. But what about if you just were like meeting someone and they're, and they're like talking to your child, like, do they understand? And so you would rate them and it gives a nice score, right? Like you rate them and then you can get like a total score or an average score, depending on what you want to do with the score. But I like it because upon intake, like, let's say I start seeing your child in January and I say, Hey mom, fill this out. And then we do it again in October. I like to say, Hey, do you remember when, um, you know, your extended family member, like cousin Susie came over and she could rarely understand your child. And now cousin Susie came over for Thanksgiving and she's like, Whoa, I understand everything she's saying. It's a nice like rating scale because it paints that picture because you see your kids every day. And I think it's hard for parents to sometimes see the progress because you just see it. But then the true judgment is like, oh, when you have like that grandparent who lives in California who comes over for Christmas and they're like, whoa, look at your kid's speech. Like that speaks miles. Yeah. And so it's a nice free resource to have as part of your assessment and treatment. That's awesome. I'm going to be using that. So thank you for sharing that one. <laughs> yes. Okay. And then the last tool that I recommend in your assessment collection is the VIMPAC, which is the verbal motor production assessment for children. And this is a helpful tool. It's, avail it's available completely online. Um, so I'll put the website in there. Um, it has been around for a while and they just recently revised it to account for updates in research and just fine tuning. And so the VIMPAC, it's gonna look at things such as focal motor control. So how your child is producing one plane of movement like pop or in um, integrated movements like phrases where they have to say like, go on top, you know, uh, where you're looking at more connected speech, but it really focuses on that like, sequencing and motor speech control and consistency um, and also stimulability to cueing. So do they need a tactile cue? Can they do it with just a visual or if you just tell them to say it? So it kind of gives you a broader picture. Um, the VIMPAC is normed. So if you are administering it for a three-year-old, it's going to give you information as to how your, how your client presents to children who do not have any motor speech involvement, how close is that gap? Um, and so it's going to look at all those movements and help you to determine if those movements are controlled and, and even consistent or if there's variability. So if I say, ah, and you say, ah, and I say, ah, 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 and we go back and forth, and then you're showing inconsistencies across your productions, it's going to, it's going to reflect that and give you, um, you know, have you scored a certain way. So it'll give you like that nice picture. I like to include this because you can also use this in addition to using like the DEMS, which I know um, other speakers might have talked about. Well, the DEMS is standardized and it's going to um, tell you if there is the presence of apraxia. The VIMPAC looks at 
norms. It's, you know, it's normed and it's going to look at that motor speech control. just like, if there is there a presence of a motor speech delay? That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that resource as well. And uh, that one is a low cost. It's like $5 per usage, right? Yes. So okay. you buy like a, a subscription. So okay. if you have one client you want to do $5, every time you use it, it's $5. Okay. Awesome. All right. So let's wrap up with the core components of intervention. I love talking about this because it's, it's like as SLPs, we are so eclectic. Like we love to like pull from here, here and here. And that's what makes you a good therapist. Like there's not ever a client that solely gets this approach. You know, you don't want to be stagnant. You want to say, well, what does my client need? And what elements can I pull from every, every approach or every piece, you know, and that's what, you know, makes us amazing as SLPs is that ability to do that. What does your client need? And then pulling it. Um, you don't want to be stagnant. And that makes me think of that research study that was published. And I'll put that in there that 85% of SLPs use an eclectic approach to treatment. So they'll use DTTC prompt and Kaufman were the top three in Canada and US that um, therapists were using. And I personally do pull from other approaches. Like even though I am a prompt instructor and a lot of my work and philosophy comes from there. I mean, I also pull other elements and that's what makes treatment most effective is you're just pulling the elements that are most effective for your, for your client. And we know in evidence-based practice, like client values are a pillar of it. So what does your client see important? What does, what works for your client? And so no matter what approach you are picking, the main thing is to keep in mind core components of what makes motor speech intervention effective. And again, everything I'm showing you is from a research study. So this is the treatment fidelity form, and it breaks down core components of motor speech intervention. So this is from the study um, also by Dr. Namasivayam, treatment intensity and childhood apraxia of speech. And it was from the International Journal of Language and Communication. So I'm going to quickly go through the components, but again, you can find this um, online as well. So in terms of key components, principles of motor learning is a big one. We want to be able to provide, you know, a big part of it is feedback. We know that when we give knowledge of performance, you know, you use too big of a mouth. I want small mouth. That's your motor specific feedback. And also if you dive deep into principles of motor learning, how you're teaching a word, you know, our, our movement. So in the acquisition stage, we know we're going to use a lot of cueing. It's going to be immediate feedback. It's going to be very specific feedback. It's going to be very controlled. Like we're going to, you know, have you work in like a block of practice versus when a child shows stability with that target. And now you're working on flow fluidity, like automaticity, like getting them to just do it, do it, do it. And you can randomize it and, you know, vary it. So thinking, and, and this is a big part. So if you're using, you have to be knowledgeable of the principles of motor learning so that you can use that in your sessions. Another important part that piece that is identified in the research to being super um, effective is going to be those multi-sensory cues. Um, 
prompt with use prompt. They're using a lot of tactile kinesthetic cues. DTTC uses a lot of like temporal cues. We say it together, you imitate it. There's a delay in imitation. So pulling that piece and tactile, visual, gestural, I mean, you, you name it, there's, it's, it should be included depending on what your client needs and fading those cues, right? We don't want to have kids always live with the tactile. So just being knowledgeable of like giving them what they need, but then also fading out and pulling back. Um, another um, component that's identified is that reduced rate. Um, I you know, do a lot of coaching with SLPs and the one and parents. And the one thing that I can say is that we don't want to bounce those sounds. If I'm teaching you the word moo, I don't want you to go, mm, ooh, we're going to go moo because motor speech is all about movements, all about co-articulation and all, all about transitions. So if I'm teaching you, mm, ooh, or sounds in isolation, mm, how are, how are we working towards those movements? right? So just using reduced rate and that visual attention. So they don't have to make eye contact at you, but they have to either tune into that tactile or your mouth so that they're, you know, internally focused on that muscle movement and also paying attention to like what words we're targeting so they can learn it. And our last one, collaborating for success beyond the therapy room. So it's important to make everything functional. Your target choices are need to be functional. I'm not going to pull a card out of a box and have you practice, you know, let's say a random word like apple. When you don't eat apples, you're not surrounded by apples, right? So making, and I'm sure everybody talks about this, but making your client's vocab functional and usable, right? So the words that I'm going to pick for this child are words that when they walk out the door, they can use and it's meaningful. And we're presenting these words in context, not just in 30 minutes of drills, right? Because we want to support and make it useful. And so collaboration, you have to collaborate with the parent or if they're in school, collaborate with the teacher and also other disciplines. I work alongside occupational therapists. So like how can we help support this child's global motor planning or their core stability or what I'm seeing in the mouth? Are you seeing this in the body? Can they cross midline with their arms? Are they, how's their tongue movement? You know, just everybody working as a team. So the main takeaway is we don't want to work in isolation and we don't want to just do drills. We want to look at that child as a whole and really make it functional, meaningful in context and empower them. That's why we're here to empower our clients and to give them that power of functional communication. Awesome. That makes perfect sense. I'm a huge proponent for functional core, core vocab. Yes. Um, yes. Is there a research for number four, like that has a list of words that are like functional words based on like whether they're CV, CVC. I remember attending like a, apraxia presentation a long time ago and we we talked about this as well but I don't remember if there was like a specific resource people can refer to again like what motor movements so it's like an overlay of like what are your child's targets right if you're working on you know opening and closing of the jaw and also looking at power words like words that they can use all the time and you know that from AAC like your core words so like up or like no or like go like these are all powerful words 
and no and go are also nice for lip rounding. So kind of for me, what I do is combine those power words. You have to identify your motor breakdowns and then pick power words and then pick, you can pick individualized words. Like um, if the dog's name, if the child has a dog named Mia and it's motivating for the child to like, this is one of my clients and um, that I used to work with, he had a dog named Mia. So we picked Mia as a target because it was a nice lip and jaw movement. And it was empowering because when he learned how to say the dog's name, the dog came over and he was able to get that reinforcer the dog and just interacting with the dog and like it just lit up his face. So I wouldn't I would steer away from wordless and kind of look at power words and what individual words your client needs to communicate and kind of matching that to their motor actions that they need to learn. Got it. That makes sense. And I appreciate you explaining it. Thank you. Anything else you want to touch on here before we wrap up today? I think that's great. And that would be my advice to everybody is these are just tools. This is just an overview. But again, if motor speech, you want that to be your expertise, there is so many resources out there and you just have to dive in and dive deep and keep going. Awesome. So thank you for sharing these references. The PowerPoint is available to everyone. It's also in our handbook too. So they have those references to refer to. And where can everybody find and connect with you? Absolutely. So I have my website, drmorespeech.com, where you can find um, more information about me and um, additional resources. My Instagram is drmorespeech. And if you would like to sign up for that free resource about the 20 signs of motor speech disorders, um, there's a sign up on my website. And you can also email me at hello at drmorespeech.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Moore. This has been super informative and it's very different than, you know, the other presentations we've had too. I love how you focused on the visual analysis, those objective measures, all of the free resources that you included. You can tell this is definitely an area that you're super passionate about and it's just such an honor. So thank you again for coming. Thank you for having me. And like I said, it was an honor to be a part of your um, conference. And I am honored to be among this amazing group of presenters that you have. Awesome. Well, until next time. Bye. Wasn't that amazing? This episode is part of an online event called Apraxia Connect. As a reminder, listening to this podcast episode does not automatically guarantee ASHA CEUs. If you want to earn 0.1 ASHA CEUs for this episode or up to 0.6 ASHA CEUs for all the episodes, plus access to perks like handouts, video playbacks, and discount codes, then you still have the chance to register using the link in the show notes. As a bonus, I'm throwing in two free handouts into the exhibit hall for you, one for parents to learn more about childhood apraxia of speech and one on AAC and CAS. So just to summarize, in order to earn ASHA CEUs, First, register for the conference with the link in the show notes. Or you can go to tasseltogether.com and you'll see the Abraxia Connect tab. Then you'll be able to access the course feedback survey quiz and earn your certificate. Please submit all the required materials no later than June 26, 2023. Thank you so much for listening and I hope to see you in the exclusive Abraxia Connect community on Tassel where you can get all of your questions about CAS answered.